Thank you so much. Thank you so much. It's a great joy to be here. It's great to uh, be able to address this theme with you. As Jim has said, it's been life-changing for me. And uh, I have a number of letters from people who've said that hearing it or maybe reading the book that I'll refer to later on has been life-changing for them. For me, I, I, was, I was converted uh, from a completely non-Christian background. Uh, my parents uh, never had an open Bible in the home. They didn't go to church. Uh, and then my sister went to London and came home a Christian. She said, I've become a Christian. I said, how do you become a Christian? I've been born again. What on earth does that mean? And uh, that very evening, uh, we knelt together and I received Christ. But to be honest, it wasn't, um, I knew I was saved, um, but I, I didn't change my life greatly. And then later I had a real crisis where I felt God really moved in on me and said, I want your life. And uh, that made a big change for me. And some little time later, I left secular work, went to Bible college, uh, experienced being filled with the Spirit, became a pastor. And I'd been pastoring for some time, actually, before I kind of had a revelation. I don't want to overstate it, but experiencing a, an understanding of grace was so life-changing for me. I think before that, I, I felt I was rather driven uh, you know, you'd pray, and when you got up off your knees, you'd think, did I pray enough? Uh, and, you know, you read your Bible, and you think, maybe you should have read more. And uh, all the time was, am I doing enough? Am I keeping you happy? Is this all right? Uh, uh, although, you know, I'm pressing on, and there's things happening, but there's always this kind of cloud which was over me. And when I suddenly saw the grace of God, it just took that completely away. And I realized, hey, I'm accepted totally. And uh, there's no condemnation at all. And that was such a breakthrough experience for me. So it's a joy to speak on that theme and to not just talk about, you know, has God just dropped the standard somehow. That's not the message at all. It's that God's changed the way in which we relate to him. And it opens up a whole new possibility of knowing him and bearing fruit for him. So I'm going to be speaking mostly from Romans. I'll just read a verse. Uh, in Romans 5, Paul is kind of arguing the difference between the devastation that came through Adam's sin, that when Adam sinned, he wrecked the human race. When he sinned, he was the human race. And all that's come out from him has been spoiled. We're children of disobedience. Uh, when we're born, there's that tendency all the time in us to be sinful, to go away. Uh, Adam did that. Adam's sin affected the whole race. And here in Romans 5, Paul is saying, but then God sent another Adam, if you like, another beginning, a fresh start, another man, Jesus. And his righteousness, his total obedience, the perfect life that he lived has established a completely new humanity. And Paul argues that through. I'm not going to read the whole chapter, but just read one verse, which is typical of the sort of things that he's saying throughout the chapter. So Romans 5, 17, I'm reading from the NASB, so if you're following in a different Bible, it won't vary very much. Romans 5, 17, for if by the transgression of the one, that's Adam, death reigned through the one, much more those who receive the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one Jesus Christ. 
Holy Spirit, we just invite you now, please, to breathe revelation into our hearts. Bless us with your truth. Do us good here tonight, we pray. Let a spirit of revelation rest upon us, we pray, Father. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So in that verse, Paul talks about reigning in life. That's the outcome of putting our trust in Jesus, that we reign in life. It's a very vivid phrase. It kind of speaks about being on top, that we don't feel we're always under things, that things are overwhelming us. No, we're reigning. We're reigning in life through what Christ has done. Um, that verse doesn't stand alone in the New Testament. You'll find other similar verses that speak about He always leads us in triumph. Always in triumph. And again, it says we are more than conquerors. Not just conquerors, more than conquerors through Him who loved us. So these kind of extravagant statements, we reign more than conquerors, always in triumph, think, wow, sounds great. Uh, and then we feel, hmm, if only, uh, you know, that, that would be what I thought I was buying into, uh, but so often we feel, ah, it's not exactly where I am. I wish I was there, but I don't really feel I am there. And sometimes that comes home to us very vividly. It may be you're at a conference or something. You set aside time, you go to a conference, you hear some preaching, and it kind of shocks you, and you wake up, you think, Lord, I, I'm not what I wanted to be. I, I want to reign in life. And that's great. It's great when you find there's a fresh motivation. That's always helpful to us, a fresh stirring in our heart. Yeah, I want to do better. I've got to do better. It sometimes comes to us, say, at the turn of the year. You know, you come to the end of a year. You look back. You say, oh, sorry about that, Lord. You know, from now on, I'm going to do better. You know, you maybe get a new diary, and you think, I haven't messed up one page yet. There's a whole fresh, clean pages, and I'm going to do better. I, I, I'm going to reign in life. And, and you may have a pause, a moment, and you think, well, how am I going to reign in life? Now, the sad thing is this, that our motivations have been stirred, but, you know, I'm looking at two doors. That's like you go out the wrong door. You go down the wrong path, which sadly is going to turn around and do you no good at all. Because what we do is this. We think, what I'll do is I'll, 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 I'll live by some rules. What I'm going to do, I'm going to, I'm, going to, I'm going to read my whole Bible this year. And now that's, you know, I count the number of pages, and like, that's going to be like seven and a half pages a day. I'm going to do that. I'm going to read my whole Bible this year. I'm going to put my alarm clock back earlier. I'm going to get up. I'm going to pray longer. I'm going to pray longer. I'm going to witness to one person. I've heard, I heard one guy said to me, I said to God, I'm going to witness to one person every day. And he said one night, he was going home, he was absolutely exhausted, and he put his head on the pillow, I thought, oh, I haven't witnessed you anybody. So he got up and he's running down the streets trying to find someone to witness to. Uh, you know, you, can, you see, I'm going to keep these rules. If I can keep these rules, then I'll reign in life. And the tragedy is this, that's not the way. In fact, Paul, when he's writing to the Galatians, he, he's, he says this, you, will, you who will be justified by law have fallen away from grace. That's interesting. If we ever use that phrase, fallen from grace, we, we tend to argue, oh, have you seen so-and-so anymore? And, well, she doesn't seem to come anymore. I fear she may have fallen from grace. And we use that phrase meaning he or she may be backslidden. Falling from grace is backsliding. But that's not what Paul, that's not the way Paul uses the phrase. 
He says that when we turn to rule-keeping, that's when we've fallen from grace. That's how, it's, that's how it's found in the Bible, that when you turn to, I'm going to keep rules. He said, don't do that, you've fallen from grace. Now, why? he says that in his letter to the Galatians. Now, if you read the whole of Galatians, which we haven't got time for tonight, but as a follow-up to tonight, it would be a great epistle to read, because that's Paul's kind of angriest letter. He starts off, you foolish Galatians, who's bewitched you? That's the way he writes to them. And what's happened? Well, this is what's happened. Paul went to Galatia. He preached the gospel. He's a traveling apostle. He arrived in this town. He preached. Many people became Christians. There were dramatic healings, signs, wonders. People got flooded with the Spirit. He built a great church. Because he was an apostle, he left that church. He said, God bless you. I'm going to go and do it again. I'm going to do it in another town. When he moved out, the Bible teaches that what the Bible calls the Judaizers moved in behind him. Well, who were the Judaizers? Well, they were Christians, but they had a strong Jewish background. And they came in behind Paul, and they saw this church that had come to birth, and they said this. Effectively, they said, hey, it's great. You Gentiles have accepted our Messiah. I mean, this is what the prophets said would happen. That the Gentiles would come in, hey, well done, wonderful, you found the Messiah. Um, but we've known him for centuries. Uh, if you really want to make sure you're all right, there's some things you just need to do. Uh, you, you must keep the Sabbath. Uh, you must get circumcised. Uh, you mustn't eat that kind of food. And you must keep the feast days. And what they did was they said, look, to make sure you're all right, you just need to add these things that we've known about for centuries. You must add these things to make sure you're okay. And Paul wrote and said, you fools! And he used this word, who has bewitched you. It's a funny word to use, just adding law. You've been bewitched. Why? He said, I set forth Christ before you. You can't improve on Christ. You can't improve on the finished work of the cross. What are you doing? You've missed the way. You've fallen from grace. You're turning to law. You've fallen from grace. You've missed the way. Now, you see, not many of us are going around saying, hey, you need to be circumcised. or you need." But what can happen is that the day you get saved even, it can be, this could be your testimony. You know, you, you meet a Christian. You think, well, I don't know, she seems to be kind of peaceful and uh, together. Hmm, what is it? They come to church. Okay, you come along. Hey, they're all a bit like it. Uh, maybe I better clean up my act. And we find we can't. We try and improve ourselves, we can't. And then one day we're in church and we hear it clear. Jesus died for sinners. Jesus died that you might be accepted. Jesus died because you can't do it. He did it. And you suddenly hear it. I can just come as I am. I can put my trust in Jesus. And you come and, and you get born again. It can be that very, that very day, someone comes alongside you and says, hey, what I became a Christian. Oh, wonderful, wonderful. I'd love to help you. Oh, yeah, please do. Um, you must read your Bible every day. Okay, got it. Uh, you, 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 you must say your prayers every day. Okay, got it. Um, I don't think you should do your hair like that anymore. Oh, okay. And, uh, and I don't think you should wear those kind of clothes either. Oh, okay. Okay. Oh, I've got it. I've got it. And, the, and that one. Oh, yeah, I've got it. Oh, thank you. I feel so wonderfully released today. 
I've been set free by the gospel. And actually, what happened to me there? Did I find God or did I, did I pick up a lot of responsibility? What happened to me? And what's happened to these people is that they, the, the clear sky of the gospel has been clouded over by a lot of religious additions. And Paul says, you've fallen from grace. Elsewhere, he says in Romans 6, the next chapter here, and verse 14, sin will have no dominion over you since you're not under law. You're under grace. Again, he says in Romans 10, verse 4, Christ is the end of the law to everyone who believes. I think, wow, that's a bit strong, isn't it? You're not under law. I thought Jesus said the law will never pass away. Where are we with the law? I'm a Christian, and maybe this, morning, this evening, if I asked this question tonight, if I said, are Christians under the law? Raise this hand. Or are Christians not under the law? Raise your hand. If I was to say, let's raise our hands tonight, and you think, well, Jesus said, the law will never pass away. Paul says you're not under law. So if I said, let's raise your hands, we all look at Jim, see what he's doing. Oh. <laughs> And sometimes we're not quite sure where we stand. Does that matter? Yeah, it does a lot. Because that is the foundational issue we're looking at. How do we relate to God? What is our acceptance based on? Where do we fit? It's so important, dear friends. This message about grace isn't just about being gracious and so on. It's about where I stand in relationship with God and why. So we only read one verse just now, so I'm going to ask you to turn the page, and we're going to read half a dozen verses at the beginning of Romans 7. And in Romans 7, Paul, just in six verses, gives us a kind of picture of the whole story. I think it's the most kind of abbreviated statement about the whole thing. It's like the whole of Galatians is right there in six verses. So we're going to look at that for most of the time we have left now, tonight. Romans 7, the first six verses. I'll read it to you, then we'll look at it. Do you not know, brothers, from speaking to those who know the law, that the law has jurisdiction over a person as long as he lives? That sounds pretty final, doesn't it? The law has jurisdiction over a person as long as he lives. For the married woman is bound by law to her husband while he's living. But if her husband dies... She's released from the law concerning the husband. So then, if while her husband's living, she's joined to another man, she shall be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she's free from the law, so that she's not an adulteress, though she's joined to another man. Therefore, my brothers, you also were made to die to the law through the body of Christ, so that you might be joined to another to him who was raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit for God. Verse 6, now we've been released from the law, having died to that by which we were bound, so that we serve in newness of the spirit, not in oldness of the letter. Okay, so let's look at this kind of parable that Paul's telling us here. It talks about marriage, uh, and he sees us all as being like married to the law. The law is like our husband. He has authority over us. 
And as such, he says to us, you should not do this, you should not do this, you should... The law says, thou shalt not, thou shalt not, thou shalt not. So the law is our husband, his authority over us, we're married to him. We can't marry someone else. We can't say, I want to be part of the bride of Christ. You've already got a husband. He says, no, you've got a husband. You're joined to him. And he has authority. Now, just let me say one other thing we'll come back to later. The Bible says that the devil is the accuser of the brothers and sisters, and he accuses us day and night. Right? So the word Satan means accuser. So his main method of attacking Christians is to accuse you. Call yourself a Christian, and you did that. You said that. You have that attitude. He just accuses you day and night, it says. In other words, it's his chief weapon just to keep on making you feel unworthy, condemned. We often think Satan lives downtown, you know, all those horrible seedy places. No, no, it says he, his main, main weapon is to tell Christians they're no good. He accuses us day and night. All right, that's what the Bible says. We'll come back to that later. And, and that affects what we're talking about here. So we're married to the, this, this law, our husband, and he's saying, you should not do this, you should not do this, you should not do this. And, and you, can't, you can't really argue with him because he's right. All his laws are very good. All his laws are perfect. You can't say, I disagree, because they're all good. You know they're good. The law is good, it's holy. But he's always showing you where you're falling short, where you're doing wrong, where you're missing the way. So the law is kind of overbearing. He's got authority over you. You can't argue with him because he's right. But he never lifts a finger to help you. So I don't want to see too many wives saying, I think he's talking about you, dear. <laughs> see, this is a pretty horrible husband. He's a kind of perfect husband, always showing you where you fall short. You can't argue, and he's not helping you. This is an amazing picture, right? So you've got an overbearing, perfect husband, always finding fault with you, and Jesus says this, he's never going to die. Isn't that great? You've got a husband who's always going to find fault with you. You can't argue with him. He's never going to help you, and he's never going to die. That's what it says here. Now, the way Paul starts this chapter it looks like somehow we've got to get rid of this husband. But the Bible doesn't argue with itself. Jesus said the law will never pass away. Right? So the law doesn't pass away. So how do we solve this? Well, it's right there in verse 4. We just read it together. Therefore, my brothers, you also were made to die to the law through the body of Christ. The law doesn't die, but Paul says to his readers, you were made to die to the law through the body of Christ. What does that mean? Well, it's something that happened to us because of our association with Christ. If anyone is in Christ, that's Paul's favorite phrase for a Christian, someone who's in Christ. Right? Because we're in Christ, when Jesus... Jesus died to the Lord. We were in Christ. We died to the law. That's what he says. Now, Jesus had two relationships with the law, right? The first relationship with the law Jesus had was this, innocence. That's the word the Bible used. He was innocent. He was perfect. Perfect. He stood up one day. He said, which of you 
finds fault with me. That's a pretty daring thing to do. He was innocent. You couldn't find fault with him. He said this, Satan's coming. He's got nothing on me. So Jesus is utterly perfect. His relationship with the law was perfection, innocence. He always obeyed perfectly. And then we find Jesus had another relationship with the law. We're told this, God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. God made him who knew no sin, who didn't commit sin, to be the personification of sin. That when Jesus went to the cross, he became the embodiment of sin, of guilt, of shame, and God judged him. And the law was absolutely vindicated. The law was upheld and Christ suffered and was cursed, it says on he, in the book of Galatians. He carried the curse, the curse. He, he took the guilt. He took the punishment. The law is vindicated and he died. He died. He's done it. The law is upheld. Jesus died. And Paul says this, you were made to die to the law through the body of Christ. When Jesus died, we died with him. Galatians 2.20 says, I've been crucified with Christ. My relationship with law is over. It's over. It's complete. Now, we need to hear this very clear, carefully because so many of us, especially if we've been Christian for a long time, have been told things like this. The law can't save you. We know, we know the law can't save, but if you want to be sanctified, you must go back to the law to sanctify you. But the Bible never, ever says that. Not once. The Bible says this, I have died to the law. My relationship with the law is over. So when I said earlier, how many of us would say, Christians are not under law, we should all be able to put our hands up and say, that's me, I'm not under law. It's finished. Jesus fulfilled it. Jesus carried away. It's, well, he fulfilled it perfectly, innocently, and then he died as though he was the biggest lawbreaker the world has ever seen. Hallelujah. And we died with him to the law. It says in verse 6, but now we have been released from the law, having died to that by which we were bound. We've been discharged. That's what the, the Greek word means, discharged, set free. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, that great Bible teacher, uses this illustration. He says, it's be like a soldier. Maybe he's done two or three years national service. Uh, you know, he signs on, and the sergeant major starts shouting at him. You know, left, right, left, right, turn. And you just do whatever he says. And for a couple of years, you have this guy shout at you. And you do everything. You just do it. Ah. Then there comes the day when you're discharged. I remember my brother did two years national service and then he got discharged. It's finished. And, uh, you know, imagine the, the, the soldier walking across the parade ground and he's got no tie on, he's got a jacket over his shoulder and, and the sergeant major comes around the corner. Soldier! <gasps> Sarge! Say, hey, wait a minute, I'm out of here. I'm out of here, Sarge. And it doesn't matter how much he shouts at you, he can't touch you because you've been discharged. It's all over. You are discharged from the law. We have been discharged 
from the law. We've died to the law. And it says in verse 4, to go back to that, so that you might be joined to another. Right, so we've, been, we've died to the law, not so that we can just you know, run around, do whatever we like, and on our own now. No, no, no. You've died to that old husband in order, it says, that you might be joined, using marriage language, joined to another, to him who was raised from the dead. Well, who's that? That's Jesus. We've died to that law, husband, that we might be married to him who was raised from the dead. In order that what? That we might bear fruit for God. Now, just take note of this. Fruit has never been mentioned before. In relationship to the law, there's no fruit. The law didn't make me bear fruit. The law said, don't do that, don't do that, don't do that. The law, the Bible tells us, defined sin. The law shows me what is right and what is wrong, but it doesn't actually make me fruitful. It draws the lines. It gives the definition. Through the law, the Bible says, through the law comes the knowledge of sin. You know, your conscience says, oh, you shouldn't do that, but your conscience can get very confused, especially in a day like ours, when we're changing the law all the time, the natural law. What is right? What is wrong? The conscience can get confused. So the Bible's law says that's in, that's out. But it doesn't change you. It doesn't change you. In fact, it, Paul says in Galatians and chapter 3 and verse 21, a very important thing. He says this, If a law had been given which was able to impart life, then righteousness would come by the law. If a law had been given that could impart life, then, yeah, righteousness would come by the law. If the law could impart life, let's get into all the schools. Let's just get into it. Let's get among those teenagers. Let's just tell them the Ten Commandments. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. He would change everything. Just tell them. You shall not bear false witness. You shall not. You shall not. If a law had been given that could impart life, righteousness would come by the law. But the law can't impart any life. The law is an impotent husband. He's not life imparting. And so to say, well, you must go back to the law to get sanctified. It can't do it. It's not equipped to do it. It won't change you. God never meant it to. The law is our school teacher to drive you to Christ. Because Christ can change you. You don't go back to the law to get changed. It cannot do it. It's impotent. It says in Hebrews, it's obsolete. Obsolete. If I did not come to church tonight on my penny farthing, it's obsolete. It's over. It's finished. It's not fulfilling that role. It's not going to change me. In fact, it says again in Hebrews, the law made nothing perfect. It can't do it. It's not got the power. But we, hallelujah, have died to the law that we might be joined to him who was raised from the dead, that we might bear fruit. The law didn't make me bear fruit. It didn't impart any life to me. He's an impotent husband. He doesn't impart life. Now, we're married to Jesus. And he says things like this, abide in me and I in you, you'll bear much fruit. He says things like this, my love 
I give to you. My peace, I give to you. My joy, I pour it out on your heart. This is a different kind of husband. See, beloved, it's a different kind of husband. The old husband says, don't do this, don't do this. This new husband says, I give you my heart. I give you my life. I give you my love. I dwell in me. That word abide is kind of a religious word, isn't it? It's like you use it at cup finals and places. Abide. What's it mean? I abide the other side of Burgess Hill. But we don't use the word abide. It doesn't mean much anymore. It just really means, one translation is called it, make your dwelling, make your home. If you make your home in me, and I make my home in you, you're going to bear much fruit. This is a husband that can change me. This is a husband that can put love in my heart and compassion and kindness and all those beautiful fruits because the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. And some say, oh, you do need some law. Wait, what, to kill you? We need life. So we now live by the Spirit, not by the letter. That's what it plainly says. Discharged from the law so that we no longer live by the letter, but we live by the Spirit. That's what the Word says. So we're in this new relationship, beloved. We're not under law. It's absolute. You see, sometimes you say to a Christian, how you get none? Uh, a bit up and down. That's often that answer. You know, reigning in life, mm, a bit up and down. I want to suggest to you, it's not so much up and down, it's more husband to husband. They're trying to relate to God the wrong way. It's like, Lord, I'm not doing terribly well. I'm sorry. As I said at the very beginning, Lord, it's not what I, I'm not what I want to be. I want to do better. Lord, I'm really going to do better for you. I'll do this, I'll keep this law, I'll keep that law. It's like, it's like saying to your new husband, I'm sorry we're not doing very well. I'll just develop my relationship with my old husband. That, will that really keep you happy? Doesn't work, eh? See, Jesus is the way. We don't need a way to the way. He's the way. I don't want to have any, any more relationship with the law. I have my relationship with this life-imparting husband who can change me from the inside. And so I'm saying, it's not so much up and down, it's husband to husband. It's relating to God wrongly. It's getting confused. See, Jesus said in Revelation to a church that had got a bit big sli uh, backslidden. He said to them, go and keep the rules. No, he didn't. He said, look, I'm outside knocking. If anybody hears my voice, opens the door. That's written to Christians, not non-Christians. I will come in to him. I'll sup with him. I, I, I'm the way. I'm the way. We come to him. We get refreshed in him. He's the new husband. We've finished. We've finished with the old one. God's done an amazing thing for us. We're not under law anymore. We're under grace. See, we battle with this thing called condemnation. And as I said earlier, Satan is the accuser of the brothers and sisters. So he'll often get on to you. He'll often argue with you, often tell you how bad you are. And sometimes people say, when you pray, this is the way to pray. Start with confession. And they say, it sounds wise, you know, clear the decks first. But Jesus didn't say that. He said, when you pray, say, Father. See, if I started with confession in the morning, I start to go and say, Lord, Lord, I'm sorry. So you start to say to God, I'm sorry about this. Satan will say, and this, what about this? Oh, yeah, I'm sorry about that too. 
and this, oh yeah, and that. It's like, it's like he gives you a big spade and you dig a big hole and you jump in. And your prayer time is, oh God, I'm such a terrible person. I'm so awful. And if you get back to ground level again, you think, thank goodness for that. But often prayer becomes an enemy. It's like, oh, I just don't, I'm not very good at it. I don't feel like, and it becomes like a burden. It's missing the point completely. We're trying to gain merit. You see, you say to me, Terry, you know, you say this, don't you pray anymore? Yeah, actually, I love praying. I love praying. But I don't pray so I can say to God, uh, 20 minutes this morning, Lord, points for that, 20 minutes, pretty good. I am not trying to impress God. I found one who's already impressed him. Hallelujah. See, I don't read my Bible. Think, hey, I'm three chapters this morning, Lord, points for that. Well, don't you read your Bible? I love reading the Bible. I'm preaching the Bible verse by verse to you. I love the Bible. But I don't read it to impress anybody. I'm not trying to get through it to say, oh, I've got through my reading. I'm up to date. You know, it's not the point. And so what happens, when I said at the beginning, someone comes alongside and says, no, you must read your Bible. The problem is just that we hear that the wrong way around. It's not like saying, you'll find this is wonderfully helpful. You'll find just so much encouragement in here. It's like, you must do this. Oh, I have to do that. And you have to, oh, I have to do that as well. And so we hear it the wrong way around. We hear, it's what you have to do. And dear friends, sometimes when you feel guilty, some Christians just do more and more and more. And it's not out of joy. It's out of, maybe I'll get rid of this feeling of guilt if I do more. And so many believers are kind of guilt-driven instead of guilt-free. Grace sets us free. It sets us free. It says in Galatians, for freedom, Christ has set you free. And we often think that's, that's talking about sin. In the context, it's talking about law. You read Galatians, it's very clear, it's about law. For freedom, Christ has set you free. You don't have to stand anymore in the yoke of bondage, he says. Don't go back into bondage, you've been freed. Hallelujah, you're freed. Right, so God has done this for us. And then he says to us, we, have, we write in life through the abundance of grace, and one more thing, the free gift of righteousness. To finish the verse we started with, the free gift of righteousness. What does that mean? It means he gives us a righteousness that's not our own. It's just, it's just given to us. See, we try and get rid of, let me, let me say like this right arm represents my awareness of condemnation. You know, I'm not doing very well. So I try and cover it. So I'll pray more. I'll read my Bible more. I'm working hard to try and get rid of this feeling that I'm not doing very well as a Christian. And then Satan comes and says, what are you doing? I'm trying. I'm reading my Bible more. And, and what do I, yeah, and I've got a Bible reading pattern now. And, I, and, I, and I'm praying longer. And I'm, I'm really dealing with this condemnation. I'm trying. Are you, are you, how hard are you trying? I'm trying very hard. Well, have you heard about Dorothy? No, what about Dorothy? She fasts twice a week. Oh, no, I fast twice a week. I've got to do that as well now. I've got to do that. I, I know when I was, I was a young, keen Christian, I used to commute to London every day, and a guy said to me, a dear friend of mine, a zealous young Christian, he said, last week I went right through the train and gave out tracks in every compartment. I thought, oh, I've got to do that now. That's exactly how I heard it. 
I've got to do that now. You feel like there's another thing I've got to do. So, you say, so I fast twice a week, you know. And then Satan comes and says, how are you doing? Well, I'm praying, I'm praying and I'm fasting twice a week. I expect you're pleased. Yes, I am pleased. I expect you're proud. Yes, I am. Oh, no, I'm proud. Oh. See, it's like many Christians think you can't win. If you're doing badly, you're doing badly. If you're doing well, you're doing badly. And many go out because they think, oh, living the Christian life is too tough. I can't keep it up. How can I be a Christian? I don't know if I could keep it up. That's the way people think. It's something you have to do, something you have to keep up. That's not safe. That's not a saviour we're rejoicing. He's going to keep you up. He's going to look after you. He's going to carry you. He's going to look after us. He declares us righteous. See, otherwise, we, we see all these things as duties we have to do. So let me pretend I'm one of the wives here tonight. All right? So you, we're here at the meeting tonight. Yes, Lord, I love you. I believe this message. We get up tomorrow morning. I have my prayer time. Lord Jesus, let me pray for my, pray for my husband, Lord. Bless him. Bless him at the workplace uh, this morning. Make him a blessing. Uh, Lord, let his light shine. Lord, he's a good man. Let his work prosper and He's, he's a good man. I know it's tough for him lately. And maybe I could, I could give him a nice surprise. I'll give him a nice meal tonight. I'll, I'll just shoot down. I'll, I'll buy, I know what he'd like. I'll get a nice meal for him. And I'll really be, oh, I must. It'd just be such fun to get him a nice surprise meal. I'll do that. That'll be fun. Oh, I'm supposed to be praying, aren't I? I'm supposed to be praying. Um, uh, oh, yeah, praying. What should we pray about? Oh, yeah, Friday. Friday. Friday, it's the missions, uh, missionary evening. Lord bless the missionaries. Um, when they come to us on Friday uh, to the missionary supper uh, Lord we pray as they tell us about what they're doing uh, out there uh, in Kenya Lord I want you to really speak to us at that missionary supper oh yeah the supper um, I, said I'd, I said I'd do the quiche didn't I I've, uh, I've not done that I've got to get the eggs oh when I'm going to get the eggs oh I could go, I could go down lunchtime actually I could get the eggs then and I guess that's what I could do that for my husband too. Oh, that would be nice. I could get that at the same time. Oh, yeah, that's, that's what I'll do. Yeah. And then Satan comes. See, Satan says, Oh, mighty woman of intercession, are you prevailing in the heavenlies? Prevailing in the heavenlies? I'm useless. My brain goes out the window. I'm a useless Christian. Can't pray. I better get to my Bible reading. Where was it? My Bible reading. Oh, yeah, I know. I was 13 days behind, wasn't I? Um, yeah, I remember. I was, uh, it was uh, Leviticus chapter 4, wasn't it? Yeah, I remember. I was, uh, and uh, so you, get, you find your place, you're 13 days behind, and you get there and you think, oh, here we go. Uh, the priest shall remove from it all the fat of the bull of the sin offering and the fat that covers the entrails and all the fat which is on the entrails and the two kidneys with the fat that's on them, which is on the loins, and the lobe of the liver, which he shall remove with the kidneys. See, and then, and then Satan says, getting a lot out of it, are we? <laughs> and you say, I don't know what it's about. And then you say this, I'm a useless Christian. But last night, we say, yeah, I'm with you, Jesus, we're together. Now this morning, you're a useless Christian. What happened? You must have had a terrible night. Now you just slept through the night, but now you're assessing yourself on your kind of religious performance. And you've, you're evaluating wrongly. 
You're making these things that God's given us as gifts, things you gain merit, points to be earned, things to be done. And you've forgotten the relationship that you have. And that, ha that is so common. That is so often the case. I preached this message on grace in a place called Constantia in Cape Town years ago. I remember at the end of the day, it was so hot. And it was in a big tent campaign. And uh, this, this guy came up to me, a very huge great Afrikaans guy. And there was his wife, and she was in a blue suit and a hat and gloves. And it was so hot. Uh, and she walked up, tears pouring down her face. And she said to me, I've been a Christian as long as I can remember. Is what you said true? I said, it's just been verse by verse in the Bible. She said, I've never heard that before. I've never heard that before. And we just prayed together, and she went on her way. I was down there a year later. And I saw this great big guy come up again, and there's this wife, and, and she looked so bright and free, and, and he said, it's like I've got a new wife. She just got hold of the grace of God. She understood it. Set her free. Set her free. The righteousness. Let me just say a couple of illustrations. Even the Old Testament prepared us for this. In the Old Testament, they were told, bring a lamb. You bring your lamb to the priests. And the lamb is presented to the priest. And the, the, the priest looks at the lamb. And as, as the priest takes the lamb, you're not hoping he doesn't notice, hey, this is all torn, and there's all mud on here. You're not thinking about this. All eyes are on the lamb. He's looking at the lamb. Any broken limbs? Is it blind? Is it diseased? And then he will say these words, I find no fault in him. There's nothing wrong with my lamb. That means I'm accepted. That's what Pilate said, I find no fault in him. We are accepted because we've got a perfect lamb. I was praying once, and uh, honestly, this happened to me. I was praying, and I was reminded of that Old Testament story. As I'm just praying, this, this story came to mind of how Jacob came to his blind old father, Isaac. You remember? Isaac was blind, getting very old, and Jacob's a bit of a crook. And he comes to his father, he wants a blessing from his father. And he's got a son that he really loves. It's called Esau. And Jacob gets Esau's clothes, because Esau's out hunting. He puts Esau's clothing on. He puts skins on his arms and on his neck. And he approaches his father hidden in the son that the father loves. Hoping against hope that the father won't recognize who's there. And he touches the clothes and he catches this fragrance of the clothes. And he thinks, this is the son I love. And he blesses. And Jacob is hidden in the son that the father loved. Scared stiff, the father will realize. And I remember I was praying once, and God said to me, right in my heart, don't fear that I'll find you hidden in the son that I love, because I placed you in the son that I love. That's what it says in Ephesians chapter 1, actually. In Ephesians chapter 1 says we're accepted in the son that he loves. And we're blessed with all spiritual blessings because we're hidden in the son that he loves. And so even often today I come to God and say, Lord, catch the fragrance of his clothing. Look on his obedience, even to the cross. Look on his kindness. Look, look how diligent he was. All that is accredited to my account now. 
His righteousness has been given to me. He stood in our place and took the guilt. He gave us his righteousness. Hallelujah. Finally, John Bunyan, that great Puritan who wrote Pilgrim's Progress, he said this. One day he was walking, feeling a bit dejected. Felt, felt a bit depressed. And he said he had a vision. Interesting, Puritan had a vision. And he said, I saw Jesus Christ as my righteousness. And he said, I realized I couldn't change that righteousness. He said, I realized that if I felt low, it wouldn't take away from his righteousness. And if I felt good, I couldn't add to his righteousness. But Jesus Christ is my righteousness. And he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. Hallelujah. So when I wake up tomorrow morning, Jesus be my righteousness again. And then the next morning, and then the next morning, until we get home to glory. Jesus is our righteousness. When you wake in the morning, if you pray together, pray in the morning, you start saying, thank you, Lord. Thank you, I'm accepting the beloved. Thank you, see me as righteous. All the righteousness of Jesus has been given to me. We reign in life because of the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness. It's totally liberating to know this is what God has done. This is how, how he has arranged. This is his agreement with us. This is the new covenant. He says in Hebrews 10, for by one offering, because it compares with the Old Testament priests, they never sat down. Offer again, offer again, offer again. In Hebrews it says, but Jesus, when he had offered, once for all, sat down. Because by one offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. He's perfected us for all time. <laughs> Hallelujah. When we wake tomorrow, we're righteous. We're accepted and beloved. We're declared righteous as a gift. He's done it. We're not under law anymore. We don't go back to the law anymore. We keep enjoying this relationship with this new husband. We keep enjoying him, dwelling in him. Let him tell us how much he loves us freely. And that changes you from the inside. You get changed from the inside. Love, joy, peace. You've had done with that old husband. He's done his work. The law is our schoolmaster to bring us to Christ. Paul says in Galatians, you don't go back to that master. You've now been adopted into the family. You don't go that way again. You're not a slave anymore. You're a son now. God's done a wonderful thing for us, beloved. I just want to mention to you as we close uh, the book, God's Lavish Grace. I mention it because this is like, I had a friend say to me once when he was at university in Sussex, he said, when a visiting lecturer comes, he tells us this much, and he says, now get the book so you can see the whole thing. I really would commend it because you say, well, what about this then? What about that then? Like the very next chapter, chapter six after five, shall we carry on sinning then? But questions arise, of course they do. But grace answers every question. Nowhere does it say, yeah, but you better go back to law then. Nowhere. Never says that in the Bible. So but I would urge you to follow it through, read it, get it into your heart, enjoy the freedom, put on your beautiful garments. It says prophetically back in Isaiah, come on, shake yourself from the dust. Come on, O Zion, put on your beautiful garments. Understand, you're clothed with righteousness. Stand fast in the freedom that Christ has provided. Father, we thank you so much for the good news. We thank you, it really is good news. 
We're so grateful, Lord, that we are in Christ. We thank you, Jesus, for bearing our shame, for dying, Lord, for letting the law curse you. Lord, we thank you. Your relationship with law was so perfect and then so complete that you took away the curse. We thank you for new life. Lord, please let your word bear fruit in our hearts tonight. May we as a church, Lord, celebrate the glorious freedom you've provided. In Jesus' name, amen.